episode eight of the Big Sky Boneheads podcast. My name is Michael Gray. His name is Scott Hershey. Thank you for checking us out. Make sure you rate, subscribe, uh, review, do all of the podcast things that everybody asks you to do. Uh, looking forward to our conversation with Dennis, ag producer and, um, and film professor, I believe. He's an MSU professor at the yes. MSU Film School, Montana State in Bozeman. He's entirely too qualified to be on this podcast. That's what he is. <laughs> Most um, of the people we talk to are. Yeah, but this one especially. You find yourself um, in a professorial environment. I don't know what he's going to think of his conversation with us, but it's a good one. Um, he was heavily involved with A River Runs Through It back in the day, kind of set the table for what a lot of people around the country think about Montana. He also was involved with Shadowcasting, which is a documentary about the filming of A River Runs Through It, so it's a movie about a movie, and its influence continues to echo uh, throughout the entire country, yeah, 29, he, 30 years down the road. He ended up uh, kind of forming a friendship with uh, Robert Redford and the making of A River Runs Through It because uh, he was... From the beginning, it was designed to make a to have a making of the movie, and he ended up doing the same thing with the Horse Whisperer by uh, Robert Redford's request. So pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're rubbing elbows with those guys, um, you know that you're doing things right. And it started a bit of a boom uh, that continues today of filming here. And granted, we've got some TV shows that are just about human trafficking and they're trash. And then there's Yellowstone that everybody seems to like. Mm-hmm. Even though it's ridiculous, <laughs> somebody's got to say it. Like, there's so much murder in that show that it's just not, I love life in Montana. It's not really. Well, Montana's not, a setting. It's, right, but it's just game wardens shooting at ranchers right. and like, I don't know what where they're getting that. And then most recently, as we mentioned in another episode, uh, Father Stu debuted with Mark Wahlberg about uh, a man who uh, spent a lot of his time at Carroll College when he came here for a big fancy party that we didn't get invited to. And then I said, I'm not going to see your movie, because if you didn't invite me to your fancy party, then all bets are off. Yeah, Father Stu, the main character, is from Helena, but then, then again, movie reference, he right. tried to be an actor, and then ended up coming be back to Montana and becoming a priest. And now it's out. Yep, it's out. And it's splitting everybody. We have uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which I never know to trust Rotten Tomatoes. I don't trust film critics, but only 43% on the tomato meter. But it's got a 95% audience score. So, so the, the critics, like it. yeah, the critics don't like it, uh, which this has happened with some movies where the critics don't like it and the audience does. Right. You know, I don't think that's highly uncommon, uh, but this is a real split. It's a big one. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know what to make of that. They always give the certified fresh. See, I'm not a film nerd I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, so I, I never know how to read that. I, I tend to think I, I side with the audience, even though... As I said, I'm boycotting it because we didn't get invited to a fancy party. <laughs> but at some point, I will probably check it out. Um, I'm looking at other... See, there are other movies that aren't even out yet that have great scores with reviewers, mm -hmm. but no ratings with the audience because nobody's been able to see it. Well, I so don't, who am I going to trust here? It's not like it used to be where the, uh, the, the box office can tell you whether a movie's good because there isn't a lot of box office anymore. And it's not like uh, it used to be where the Academy Awards can tell you anything about a movie because nobody's seen any of the movies they, they nominate anymore. Right. So I guess with this particular one, if you have an interest in seeing a movie about a guy from Montana, maybe you know go see it. Uh, the audience seems to like it. Yeah, and I think you got to take their word for it. All you have to do is read a film review to realize... How in 2022, being a film reviewer shouldn't be a thing. Yeah, and I we, saw we don't need them. I saw some clips, a little, you know, kind of a sample of some of the uh, critics. 
one of them said, uh, you know, it has all these uh, cliches about this guy and about his life. And I was like, well, what if it was true? What if, right. This is what this is a bio, biographical film. If the guy did these things and this is the way his character was, what are you supposed to do? Change that? Because uh, it's supposed based on him. And that seemed to be the consensus of the folks we have here locally that were at the fancy party that we didn't get invited to. And saw the film. Mm. They seem to think there were a lot, a lot of folks that were in real life IRL for you kids playing on the phones. They were friends with this guy, and they say, "Yeah, this, this is kind of this, this guy's crazy existence." Um, yeah. And and Mark Wahlberg seemed to be really, really happy with it. He said he wanted to focus on doing smaller films, and it's just the latest in a growing line of film products coming out of the state of Montana. Sounds yeah. like Mark Wahlberg's got a lot of new fans here in Helena. For taking well, he, on this guy's story, for yeah. coming here and doing the premiere. Well, he's walking around that. campus, like taking yep. selfies with people. Meanwhile, we don't get invited to the fancy party. Right. We didn't get to see him. No, we didn't, nothing. Couldn't call in. Couldn't say, "Hey, what's going on?" <laughs> no. Drop a line. Want to see the movie? Seventeen twenty-five. That's what it's going to go. <laughs> That's what we got. That is exactly. Same as everybody else. Which is all right. That's who we are. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I get it. Thanks for reminding me of my place. <laughs> At any rate, forty-three percent from the critics. Yeah. 95% audience score. Now, that's 76 reviews from the critics and over 1,000 verified ratings from the audience. There you go. So 95%. Yep. Pretty good. That sounds good. Yeah. It'd be I'd not- rather have the audience like you know it than the critics. 100%. You know what? Mark Wahlberg, if you're taking the time to join us right now, it'd be 96% if I'd have gotten invited to your fancy party because I'd have given a favorable review. <laughs> I would have liked it. Mark Wahlberg's not coming on the podcast. He's probably... Probably not returning our calls. We'd rather have a guy like Dennis Egg. Yeah, someone who is returning our calls. Super excited to have this conversation about a, an absolutely legendary film that continues to shape the way people see Montana today. Super excited to welcome our guest this week to this episode of the podcast, Dennis Egg, a professor and producer of films and man that was involved with a movie you might have heard of called A River Runs Through It. Sir, how are you? I'm all right. How does it feel to put your hands on something? We're coming up on the 30th year. I think next year is the 30 year uh, reun- uh, the 30-year anniversary rather of A River Runs Through It. To have your hands on something that has become so timeless and such a part of the, the fabric of not just uh, the film world, but the state of Montana. Uh, well, it's really, it's really quite gratifying. You know, it's, it's like the John Lennon quote, you know, life is what happens while you're doing other things, you know, and we, we were involved in this film and very excited about it. And we knew it was an exceptional film, but we had no idea that it was going to become a classic, um, or that it would have such a profound effect on Montana. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, definitely a high point of my career and um i'm just very grateful that i was involved in it so going back to the very beginning of this uh, how did you get involved with that particular movie and we'll talk about some others that you were involved with as well but with it with the river runs through it uh kind of the beginning stages of your involvement with that and how it progressed with your relationship with mr redford well it's it really dates back to uh ohio uh, when I was at Ohio State, and one of my good friends there, um, and one of still one of my good friends is Patrick Markey, uh, was had a very distinguished career, and um, he was a producer on um, A River on Strut, and uh, he called me up when they were planning to shoot here because I think I was at the time the only person that he knew here, um, and he now lives lives in Bozeman. Um, but he called and said, we're going to come up, we're going to do this film called the river runs through it. 
and I had not heard of the book because uh, I'm not really a fly fisherman. And I said, well, that's great, Patrick. And he came up and we had a meeting with the film commissioner at that time, Lonnie Stymack, and everything started to be put in place. And um, so as they began to uh, crew up the film and cast the film and get everything in order, uh, they wanted some behind the scenes footage. And I was at Montana State there. I'd just been hired and I actually had two positions there. I was uh, a professor uh, and I was also a producer for Montana Public Television. And uh, so he said, well, maybe you can, you know, get some students or whatever to come and help with the behind the scenes work. And um, A River Runs Through It was really, even for its day, a low budget film. Um, I think it was its budget was something like $10 million or something, which doesn't sound like a small amount, but it was when you think of uh, some of the other films that were being made at that time, which were like 80 million. Um, so um, I said, sure. And uh, we talked about it at Montana PBS and we decided, well, maybe they'll let us do an entire documentary about it, not just some footage that could be used in their publicity and Patrick uh, talked to um, obviously the, the executives and everything. And everyone said, yeah, that was, uh, you know, they were happy with that. And so I enlisted uh, two of my uh, best students at the time, which were, was uh, Andy Frontke and Robert Wilder. And um, yeah, so it turned out that we were going to be shooting a documentary. And Redford very much liked that idea. He has always been um very uh, friendly and supportive of students and he thought this was a great idea and you know now behind the scenes have become almost a required part of every production but back then it was still fairly new uh, you have to remember we did not have the internet uh we didn't have cell phones um and unless you had the old michael douglas cell phone you know the <laughs> big thing like with <laughs> wall street uh, not a whole lot of people. I can still remember having a bag phone when we actually were doing the, the filming uh, in my car. Um, but the, the point was that um, behind the, the scenes footage was still uh, a relatively uh, rare kind of entity. And so uh, that was very exciting um, because we were also moving into electronic press kits and that sort of things. And and it was a good experience for the students because they'd have that uh, opportunity. And of course, we were we were working with PBS, and um, that had a lot of cachet, as it still does. And so um, everything just seemed to come together, and we wound up working on the movie. Well, as a uh, I, you know, I am a fly fisherman, and uh, also I was living in Billings at the time. And again, pre-internet, I remember. Although you say you know it was a small budget film with Robert Redford involved with it, I remember it was big news that this movie was being made. You know, movies weren't made quite as often in the state of Montana at that time. And I remember there being classified ads in the uh, newspapers asking for fly fishermen who were experienced fly fishermen to be like body doubles and to do some of the the distance footage of them casting. Yes, the, the definitely there was there were multiple doubles. Uh, we did have some very top flight uh, fly fishing people as well as advisors. Uh, we had John Bailey, um, you know Dan Bailey's son. Uh, John Deech was part of that, um, and a number of other people. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was obviously a big deal because you know it, it involved Robert Redford and. Um, 
And, and the casting, of course, included people who weren't well-known at that time, including Brad Pitt. Um, but, um, you know, it sort of worked out. I mean, to give you an idea, compared to the other film that was shooting that summer, which was far and away, the, uh, you know, Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, Ron Howard movie, mm -hmm. uh, this was a lot smaller in scale. And I was actually involved with that film, too, because we had interns from the department working on that film. And so periodically I had to go visit that set to um, just monitor the interns and check in on them with one of my uh, colleagues, the late Bill Neff. And so uh, I had this very strange Hollywood summer where I was commuting <laughs> between a Robert Redford film and a Tom Cruise, Ron Howard movie. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, and I had only been in Montana for two years. I'm going like, I never would have dreamt that this was happening, you know, but um, that was the way it was. So, uh, but most of, most of my summer was spent on a riverance road. Knowing so. how, how much those films resonate with people outside of Montana as a model of what's going on in the state, you're in Bozeman. Do you look around and go, wish I hadn't done quite such a good job. I sold this place pretty uh, no, well. No, <laughs> it's, you know, Patrick and I sometimes joke about it, that he should get some kind of, uh, you know, royalty every time somebody sells a house or buys <laughs> land or whatever it's done. I mean, we, you know, to be quite frank, no one, no one ever imagined it would have that impact. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, we could tell from the dailies that this was going to be an exceptional film. Um, but, you know, there are plenty of exceptional films that, that don't become classics or legends or whatever. And and in terms of impact on communities, you can never tell what that will do, you know, um, and we we didn't have, you know, our our kind of conversations when we had about it was we thought really that it was going to be considered a very good art film, but we didn't think it would have uh, widespread um, responses. But of course, Cruz always think they know better. So um, as I've learned in my years now, and so you just, uh, you know, so we were clearly mistaken. Um, but it is, you know, a, a testament to the film that it has had that impact. And yeah, and yes, sometimes I go like when I think of what the town was like when I, you know, the Bozeman was like when I first arrived here, it was very different. And um, so and I see it as kind of the first wave. And then we've now had the pandemic, which is the second wave. And of course, we're dealing with things like cost of living and housing issues and everything else. Um, I don't think River Runs Through It is totally responsible for all that. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it did start the influx. You know, my own theory, this is totally my own personal read on it, is that that film came out at a time when the boomers, of which I'm one of them, <laughs> were reaching middle age, you know, and um, they'd been through, you know, rebellion when they were young and through, you know, the Gordon Gecko era of the 80s, you know, uh, greed is good. So now they're starting to think of like, well, you know, maybe we, we have to stop ping ponging back and forth and, and do something a little bit better. And so, um, you know, and fly fishing involves meditation and and calmness and becoming one, one with nature and the film of course of course emphasizes family a great deal uh so i think uh it just hit a generation at a time when they were ready for that and um and everything followed from from that uh intersection
So you were making a movie about the making of the movie while this is all going on. Correct. There had Correct. to be a, yeah. a ton of challenges uh, with the fly fishing scenes. I know you filmed a lot on the Gallatin River. Um, filming fly fishing, uh, you know, sounds real easy now with with uh, the cameras we have and everything we've got. But filming a lot of those scenes, the raft scene and and all of those, had to be a real challenge for it to get to end up with the polished version you see today. So tell us a little bit about that process and about also being kind of standing back and watching the filming as you're filming the making of. It's almost a dual effect there. Yeah, I mean, every every film is a challenge. You know, now that I've done a number of them, you know, um, there's no such thing as an easy film, you know, you think, oh yeah, this will be nothing. And then there's, there's challenges. So there's always challenges. This one, um, there's, there's a little interview with Patrick in the documentary where he actually talks about it. Uh, I don't think people realize how hard it is to shoot on a river. You know, a river is like this huge mirror that reflects light back on you, you know, um, so you had to adjust for that. Rivers are noisy, even though we think of them as being quiet and placid. Uh, in fact, we had um, so much river noise in the dock that we had to dub some in over one of the interviews. Uh, most, of the most of the interviews were done by the river, so it was easy. So it wasn't really a problem, but we did uh, Craig Sheffer's interview for a variety of reasons, uh, like back in the woods somewhere, and it was too quiet. It was too quiet when we got into the mix. We're going like, oh, my God, what is, you know, so um, so we had to sort of dub in the river in that. Um, it was a very physical shoot. A lot of it was shot on the Gallatin River. And, um, you know, there weren't as many accesses to it as there are now. So they had to string ropes down. And I remember us carrying our gear. We had this very, uh, what do I want to say, first or second generation video equipment. Um, which were called dockable decks and all kinds of things, which some, some media people will either remember or try not to remember <laughs> because they were fairly clunky to do it out in the field. Um, but um, it, there was a lot of logistical challenges, which, which the film crew did a great job of, um, of meeting. And, um, you know, one of the things we wanted the film to do as well was to show what's involved in making a movie. So for a while, the film was also used in a lot of film classes uh, across the country because we basically interviewed every department, which is almost never done on electronic press kits. Usually they talk to the, you know, the director and the stars um, and maybe a few others. But we, we have in the archives, everybody, including the grips, there's like a great interview with the grips, which just didn't fit in. To the film that we weren't able to use. There's a great one with the editor, Lindsay Klingman, um, which also didn't fit into the film because we really didn't discuss post-production. Uh, we had to you know, find some limit to it because that would fit into a PBS hour, which is 5646, you know, 56 minutes and 46 seconds. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, uh, but everybody was, you know, what we did was, um, as I said, these these EPKs were not normal or weren't, I wouldn't say normal, but they weren't as accepted as they are now. And so we had to make the cast and crew comfortable with us being there. And so I have a, a background in folklore. So the thing that when we had our, our meetings, you know, I told Andy and Robert, I said, we have to treat this as if we're going into a different culture. And so there are some rules when you do that. And one of them is you first 
meet the people and talk to them and don't just come in filming right away because you can spook them. You know, they're, they're working and you have to respect that. And that's exactly what we did. So the first, first scene we actually shot was one of the ones at the train depot because there were extras and it was outside and we would be kind of fairly inconspicuous. And after that, they, um, they finally trusted us and, and, we really became part of the crew. They called us Spy Cam. That was our nickname. Um, <laughs> they'd go like, you know, Spy Cam is on set today. Um, but they were just too busy. You know, it was a very uh, hardworking crew. And after a while, they're just too busy to worry about us. And, um, you know, we well, we just did what we had to do. And they obviously did what they had to do. And your, your partners who made that, I know, because I talked to Andy and I said, well, you know, what did you do? And the first thing he didn't say anything, his first response about um, this, the river runs through it was not, I'm making the documentary about the making of a river runs through it. His first response was, I carried that darn raft up and down the, or boat up and down the canyon about 25 times. That was what he yeah, first told yeah. me he did on the, on the film. <laughs> Oh yeah, we were we were schlepping stuff. There was no question about it. That was it was a schlep for us, and because we really usually were only three people. Occasionally, we had another student who would act as a production assistant, but um, you know we were and and EPK crews are still very small, um, and yeah. So and as I said, we had to get we had to do every we had to go everywhere the crew was going, so uh, without as much help. And so, yeah, I totally understand where Andy's <laughs> comment came from, because yeah, it was it was uh, it was challenging, I guess, both artistically and just physically. So, um, and I was and I was older than they were too. So, you know, um, that was part of it. You mentioned adapting to the culture to get the, the kind of the authentic experience of what it was like to make the film. How much of that do you take forward as a producer on on your other projects, and, and oh, finding you- that chord? Yeah, all the time. I mean, the research is is very important. Um, not all film crews are the same. You know, when you're on a big shoot, there's a lot of people. There's also a lot of money at stake. Um, when you're on a smaller uh, kind of film, um, there's obviously economies that have to be made, and usually fewer people. So it's, um, and you also have to know what kind of story they're trying to do on whatever means they have, whether it's large or small. And so uh, one thing that impressed me about the entire crew of A River Runs Through It is there were copies of the book all over the set, which I have never to this day seen. Um, Everybody had read it. People were taking fly fishing lessons, you know, on the crew, which you know, um, if you're doing a film about uh, farming, I don't, I've never seen crews go out and learn how to farm. You know? <laughs> um, so, um, so there was a there's a real dedication to uh, what they were doing. Uh, I think there's a real dedication to uh, to Bob and to um, Patrick and everyone else who was who was working on the film. So, yeah. Um, it, it is something that I try to do on all my films. And uh, it's, it's very critical to realize both the backgrounds of the people who are doing the films and also to the story that, that they're trying to tell. 
Now, after all these years, you obviously see what the impact was on the state of Montana from this movie. Uh, we talked to the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks director, and he said there were two big events that affected Montana, River Runs Through It, and most recently Yellowstone. And so those are, you're talking about movie and a, and a, and a, and a series. Uh, so now when you see, and through the year since the River Runs Through It, when you see these projects, uh, we've gone from that to now there being a movie ranch outside Livingston. Uh, when you see projects, does it does it like resonate with you like this might have an impact on the state? This might have a a positive impact or a negative impact or bring in tourism. Are you now kind of aware of, of how big that can be? Well, I think I was always aware, you know, there are things like if you, you know, you, there's always been an impact on certain films, you know, Marfa, Texas. Have you ever been to Marfa, Texas? It's in a fairly remote part of West Texas, but East of Eden was shot there, you know, and people still talk about it. Now was in the fifties, you know, um, so films have a great, great impact. And um, no, I, I think I've become very much aware of it, but I don't think, and I know it was true on a river run, so we did not go into the film thinking about the impact on Montana because you never know how your film's going to be received. So, you know, the focus was always on let's make the best possible film we can make. The thing that still amazes me is that the the story of the film is set in Missoula, okay? So we cheated a whole <laughs> different part of the state from Missoula, and people, like, read the credits to know where this beautiful, you know, part of the state was, uh, which, you know, the, the assumption is the only people who read the credits are the film crews, right? Um, um, but... Um, yeah, so even that made it even more remarkable that they knew that, you know, a lot of it was shot in Gallatin Canyon uh, and on the Gallatin and around Livingston and Bozeman. So um, it's um, I think I think part of it was there was already a fairly strong fly fishing community in those towns. And um, when people were interested in learning about fly fishing or coming out and experience it, there were people there to do that. I, I just think that people didn't realize how many individuals would want to do that. As someone who knows how the sausage, as someone who knows how the sausage is made with regards making a film, when you watch things that are supposedly set or stories that are told about Montana, what do people get wrong? Well, I mean that that Mon there, Montana isn't just one story. It's not like we all get up in the morning and go fly fishing, you know, um, and. Um, it's it's kind of not understanding um there are certain challenges of living in montana especially back then um <clears throat> excuse me there's certain economic issues um and there are while we don't have a, a diversity that most people would define like you have in a big city you do have differences between people who are doing different things there are different differences among the regions you know eastern montana is not the same as western montana and even within Western Montana, you could say the communities of Bozeman, Missoula, and let's say Great Falls and Helena are, are all distinctive in themselves and aren't just the same. So I think I think coming I come from New York originally, and I think there's a way that people, you know, just uh, characterize New Yorkers. Um, and I probably have some of those characteristics, but not all New Yorkers do. And um, it's it's just trying to understand that the picture you get in a film is the picture that was appropriate to whatever the story is. 
and that you really have to be open to learning about uh, what the complicated reality uh, is that exists in these different places. Yeah, yeah kind of in regards to that, you know, Montanans love when they see a Montana film or a TV series or whatever it happens to be, they love to kind of pick out that's not this particular place or that's not this particular place. And I'm sure you've heard a bunch of that about it. And especially my, the one that always sticks out to me, and I've heard this, uh, this commented on several times, uh, not even that long ago about how, uh, how uh, hard it would be to take an old, Model A and drive it from Wolf Creek to Missoula <laughs> to drop off yeah, Jesse. I, yes. I mean, their dates must have taken weeks, you know? I mean, that's all I can say, you know? I mean, I remember we thought about that too. I mean, I, you know, I still don't know how people would drive cars in those days, you know? I mean, I'm going now, we have four wheel drive, we have all these different tires. We have, I'm going, boy, how do you drive that car, you know? And what did they do in the wintertime? Notice we didn't have any winter footage, you know? Um, right. So, um, you know, the, but um, that, that is a very good point. You know, people will realize those things, but, um, but it's the same thing. Look at our whole concept of what the old West was like, you know, the 19th century and early 20th century West, you know, from films. And um, when you really get into the history, you realize, well, you know, Montana really, you know, they had the mining settlements earlier on and places like Butte, but it was really the railroad that opened up the West, you know, um, to bring more people in. Um, and there's all sorts of, you know, complicated relationships with Native American tribes. So all these stories are much more complicated than they would be. But you take almost every film story is just one piece of that continuum. And so um, I think audiences just have to be aware that, okay, we're only seeing part of the story in any film, and that includes a river and thread. So, What gets you excited now? What have you got in the pipeline? So I've, um, let's see, so I'm still making films. I actually have a, a film called Youth versus Gov that I was a co-producer on that Christy Cooper directed, which will be premiering on Netflix uh, on the 29th. Um, of, of April. Um, and that's about, and it's a documentary about the young people who are suing the federal government about climate change. And uh, it did very well in festivals. We're in something like 51 festivals and won 21 awards. So uh, we're very excited about that film coming out. I've just finished um, a uh, dramatic film, kind of a period uh, suspense film um, that we actually shot up in the Bitterroot area um, outside Darby. Um, and we're working on post on that. And Patrick and I still work together on things. And so um, he's actually working on Yellowstone at the moment. Uh, he just got brought in to work on that. But um, um, we we're also discussing some other projects, but we're not, we're not doing a sequel to a river. Runs through it, I'll just say that, so. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm surprised the, uh, the, cause you also, uh, you also had a hand in, and did similar things with, uh, with the horse whisperer. And, uh, I'm kind of, uh, I'm surprised, uh, you know, in that movie, uh, it also had, it had some impact on the state and there were parts of that movie. One of my most, my favorite parts of the state that it's so beautiful. Uh, I believe you've, you're up the Boulder river on that one. And that, that area is absolutely breathtaking so oh. i'm sure you got questions about where that was filmed as well yeah and 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 um 
it's still a beautiful part of the state that doesn't get enough recognition. And probably now I'm going to get into trouble for you know <laughs> saying anything. Um, but yeah, um, it, it was, I think, a different kind of story, you know, and um, and I think that's why that impact wasn't as great, um, because it really uh, was centered around a tragedy in a young woman's life. And um, so but that was also um, a very exciting film to work on. It was a much more um, um, extensive film and had a, a higher budget and more people and that kind of thing and more stars you know you have to remember river runs through it had no real star the star in it, i shouldn't say no star it's not really fair tom scarrett's a great star but tom was the only one that anybody knew you know mm-hmm. um brad was known from thelma and louise a little bit you know he has that small but pivotal role um and um you know um it, it was just there were a lot of future stars that came out of that film, but they weren't stars at the time. And so um, it's, it's just all, it, it was just a lot of things worked well for that film. And you also and, got to uh, see, uh, you got to see Brad Pitt in his, uh, almost his acting infancy along with Scarlett Johansson and also Nicole Kidman, who all three, uh, those are, those are big stars, household names now that you saw pretty early. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um and it was really an experience. They're all very hardworking professionals. You know, Scarlett was particularly impressive because she was in there with Sam Neill and Bob and Kristen Scott, Tom, you know, she, Chris Cooper, all these people. And, you know, she was 13, you know, um, and she held her own, you know, and she was a great person. You know, she wasn't like the stereotype of like the child star thing. And, um, so no, it was, and all of them were. There was a very impressive team of of actors on that film. So uh, and so, I felt very uh, lucky to to see them at work and to work with them too. So, so when you're at home was, and you've got the TV to yourself, what is Dennis Egg watching? What do you what do you check out? Oh, I check out all kinds of things. You know, it's it's uh, you know because I'm still teaching, so I try to keep up with. Um, um you know what current films are going on you know and um and and there's a lot now there's way more than when we were doing uh river runs through it or horse whisper you know something like 487 series or something uh that were released uh at least before the pandemic so that's a lot of of watching but i'll watch everything you know Um, i'll watch mysteries you know i'll watch you know power of the dog or coda and that kind of thing. Um, I'll watch documentaries and I try not to be a snobby documentarian. <laughs> so, you know, I'll watch the la- the last dance as well as uh, some other things, you know, as, as well as, you know, some of the stuff that I've been doing. Um, so it's um, yeah, it's a very eclectic group of things that I watch. What so, are young, um, uh, what are young filmmaking students interested in doing as they, uh, as they go out in the world of filmmaking? Um, I mean, it's across the board. Um, they they have a very unique uh, way of looking at the world. So, for example, you know, they the Oscars are not a big part of their world. Um, now, none of, the, none of them has been nominated yet, so maybe that would change it. But um, they um, but, you know, the whole Will Smith thing and and even the Oscars themselves. I remember when the nominations just came out, I asked my class. You know, and only about three or four of them were even aware that the nominations had come out, and they they weren't really 
you know, they weren't planning to watch the the um, the show. You know, I remember that we used to have Oscar parties, you know, and it was like watching the Super Bowl, you know, and uh, it's a big change because I think their world has a variety of ways that people consume media. You know, it's it's basically a question of screens now, not just theaters, not just television. Um, it's their phone, it's their computer. It, it is theaters, you know, that's where a lot of the current theater going audience comes from, the younger uh, demographic. Um, and they are very adept at both uh, absorbing media in different forms and formats and lengths and creating that themselves. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, I tell them they have a great opportunity here because the industry is in a period of, um, you know, flux or turmoil, depending on which way you want to look at it. Um, and, uh, there's opportunities there for them. So, um, and a lot of the work they're creating is great. So, um, well, I, I'm if, very if proud uh, of my students, people love uh, River Runs Through It. I would r greatly encourage you to watch uh, Shadow Casting, the the making of the River Runs Through It, uh, and and that is, I think it's it just adds so much more to the movie as most most of those making ofs do. That was actually nominated for some pretty prestigious awards just for Shadow Casting. Yes, yeah, we 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 actually got the uh, Gold Hugo in Chicago, which was you know a big thing. Uh, and given our budget, which I will not even say what it was, uh, except to say you know because I was the faculty member, I actually had a credit card, you know. But um, <laughs> it's um, yeah, so it got we we got a number of awards. It uh, went up. Um, to a lot of the PBS stations um, and, you know, played for a while. I mean, it's, uh, I literally, this was just coincidental when you guys contacted me about the podcast, um, the American fly fishing museum uh, asked me about it. Apparently they'd never seen it. Um, and so now it's going to be part of an exhibit that they're going to have in Missouri. Oh, wow. So for a, you know, for a documentary that's almost 30 years old, that's, yeah. that's pretty good, you know? Um, so I'm not complaining. And, um, you know, as I said, a lot of the credit goes to uh, Andy and his brother, David, who did a lot of work on the, on the editing and uh, Robert and Colin Phillips was part of that. You know, we had a great team of very young filmmakers and, you know, they rose to the occasion. That's all I can say. So. It's an amazing story about a story and then all of the characters wrapped into it. Films are always, what I say is there's always a risk. They always talk about it in the financing, but it's a risk. Every film is a risk, which is why the process can be grueling sometimes. Um, but, you know, on occasion, and I've been fortunate it's been a number of occasions, you know, you're attached to something that, that does have a lot of impact and is simply a great film to watch. Well, I got to thank Andy Fromke for uh, putting us in touch with you. Uh, and no, he's been listening to the podcast on a regular basis. So uh, thank you very much. I was gonna, we were gonna interview him. He put it. He said, "No, let's go, let's go straight to Professor Egg instead." And so we did that. And uh, we thank you so much for your time, sir. Well, thank you guys for inviting me here. Thanks again to Dennis Ag for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Uh, super fun to talk about uh, just an enormous cinematic moment here in Montana. And make sure you rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We drop new episodes every single week. We aim for Thursdays. Usually, we're pretty good, about 90% landing on the same day of the week. So please do that. Uh, if you like what you heard, 
uh, I don't know, tell people about it. And then they'll tell people, and then other people will tell people. And eventually I'll be able to pay for my kids' college. It's going to be great. Uh, thanks again. We'll be back next week.